Welcome back, everybody. I am Cass Piancy. I am joined, as usual, by my partner in crime, Bennett Tomlin. I'm not even going to bother. We're going to move on from How Are You. We are joined by a special guest, David Canellis. Uh, second time on. So glad to have you here. He is in charge of the newsroom over at Protoss Media. Um, how are you today? Hello, hello. I'm good. Very relieved to have everything published today. Excellent. Yes. And when he says relieved to have everything published, David is referring to the Tether Papers, which were released today, Wednesday, November 10th. I would love for everyone listening to be able to play along while we discuss this. So if you can go ahead, visit protoss.com, P-R-O-T-O-S.com, click the investigations tab, and this should pop up. You should be able to see the Tether Papers. I think there's going to be some questions to address and, and some other stuff we'll go through, but First, David, let's let's just can you define what the tether papers are? Uh, sure. I, I think that the easiest way to define what we have put out is that it is a complete mapping of who has been issued tether directly from tether treasuries stretching right back to 2014. So what this shows is exactly who acquires Tether directly from Tether and where generally they use that Tether, uh, be, it, be it crypto exchanges or for, or for some other function. So this should give people an idea. This is specific to Tether, but if you can extrapolate it out to just crypto markets in general, it should give everybody an idea of who provides liquidity to the crypto ecosystem at large. So that would be the main takeaway that you would hope people could extrapolate on would be that th this shows you exactly who is buying tethers uh, and buying may, may not be the, the right word because we don't know how they're acquiring them. It's not just about who, it's also about the size and the relative size of the various entities in the space. Protos published something earlier this year that, that showed that, uh, you know, more than half of all Tether in circulation was first acquired by uh, Alameda Research, the, the quantitative trading outlet controlled by Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, and Cumberland Global is a subsidiary of DRW, a major, a major finance kingpin. Apart from those two entities, we have now been able to map the major funds and other smaller market makers that also acquire Tether uh, and eat it into the system by either market making, providing liquidity or just trading it. So, I mean, I, I guess on that note, let's just start digging into this paper. So the first, uh, the first chart that you have here is a Tether distribution full outbound history. And it looks to be almost entirely composed of what you're defining as market makers. Is that right? So it is, we tracked market makers and we define market makers as generally entities who received individual lots of Tether valued at over $100 million at a time. So it might be somewhat of a natural occurrence that an overwhelming majority of the tether that has been distributed ends up in the hands of these entities because it is a lot of tether uh, compared to uh, smaller individual traders. Generally, they receive under $10 million, we, we found. And funds and companies, so hedge funds like, like Three Arrows, these kind of entities generally were issued between 10 and 100 million worth of tether at a time. Sometimes these transactions would happen at multiple times in a day, but still we, we, we use the classification of single tether transactions 
how regular they were. So if a market maker received many transactions worth $100 million at a time, then we were confident to put it in this bracket. And yes, like so throughout the whole history of Tether since 2014 until October 31, Tether treasuries and some Tether printers that we called Tether printers that worked as Tether treasuries for a short while, they had distributed $108.5 billion worth of Tether overall. And of that, 96, almost $97 billion of that went directly to market makers. And it was only just a little bit over $9 billion that went to funds and companies. Uh, and then it was a very uh, a smaller amount went to went to individuals. So so it's it's no question that entities who participate in the crypto ecosystem that provide liquidity acquire an overwhelming majority of tether that it has ever sent anybody. Yeah, and and on that note, you kind of dive into Alameda Research and and Cumberland Global a bit a bit more in this and how how pivotal they seem to be not just to tether which is is clear based on the percentages of tether that have gone to them overall but these guys seem to be kind of using this to prop up the entire ecosystem in some sense I, and i don't mean i think that's a loaded term when i say propped up but I, I just mean these these guys are super important to the entire ecosystem well i think that the best way to frame that particular question and it, it's something that that I, that I tried to cover in the FAQ. If, if listeners do go ahead and re read the Protoss Tether Papers FAQ, I do try to address this in detail. But what I would say that these two particular entities serve for Tether, and they've received 55% of all outbound volume from treasuries in Tether's history, that rather than maybe prop up the market, they, I would say that they prop up the trust in Tether that these two entities acquire the liquidity for the tether markets in almost every top exchange. And so if there are two entities that believe in the tether business model enough to acquire that much tether and leverage it for their own purposes, then in a sense, this instills those markets with the confidence that tether is okay. So I think that this is what they primarily serve for Tether. I think that the other thing to just consider whenever you're looking at Alameda and Cumberland is that they're probably the entry point for a lot of other people who are not direct clients of Tether to get access to Tethers, either by uh, trading against Alameda or Cumberland on an exchange or something where they're providing liquidity or in over-the-counter transactions and the like. I imagine Cumberland and Alameda right now are holding a relatively small fraction of the total tethers they've been issued over the time they've existed, because most of them have probably been distributed from them out into the market more broadly. I would agree with that too. A lot of people have described them as, as tether resellers, and I think that this is kind of an apt description. But at the same time, if Alameda and Cumberland are acquiring this tether, then they are likely we understand to be at least loaning that out in some form. So if they are loaning crypto like Bitcoin or Ether in exchange for Tether, those loans have to be priced somehow. And the price that Tether would put on that collateral would be based in Tether 
and that would be one dollar so yes they are resellers but they have still provided some form of collateral to be able to serve that function but the length at which sam bateman fried in particular has defended tether uh in the mainstream press kind of highlights that he really does believe that everything is okay there and well, he is He's at least shared some some frustration that people do not believe that the company is legit. I certainly think that's reasonable. And I think Tether itself is probably a pretty profitable instrument for Alameda Research. Sam's talked publicly before about how he's relatively frequently arbitraging the Tether peg or the Tether premium. And so I think that he probably likes Tether because it helps him make money. And that dude likes to make money. <laughs> Sure. And yeah, the, the other thing, I might be jumping ahead here, but another entity that we have we have detailed uh, is Jump Crypto, which is the new subsidiary of uh, Jump Trading. And Jump Trading has operated, reportedly operated uh, in the crypto space for some time, but now it is a fully fledged spun out crypto trading company. Now, most, almost all of the tether that is received is this on Solana, uh, because Jump Crypto signed a deal with Serum to provide liquidity to decentralized exchanges on Solana, which is Mango Markets, which is powered by Serum. The only market direct trading pair on that decentralized exchange is between Tether and Circle's stablecoin. So this at least, whether Jump Crypto is a reseller of Tether, that is okay, but it is still permanently priced at $1 via the circle peg. So these entities truly believe that one tether is equal to one US dollar. And so by proxy of that, they also believe that every tether is backed one-to-one -one by its assets. So I think that this is very important that they all trust that this peg is real. I think this is an important point because it also touches on the fact that the tether papers don't cover whether or not these assets are actually backed one-to-one, -one, right? The, the makeup of their loans and their commercial paper and their other assets that they hold, that is not clarified in this. And on top of that, I think it, it might be worthwhile to touch on the fact that while it, it, it's sort of easy to track, it's easier to track Tether sending out Tethers, minting new Tethers and sending them out to people, it's actually much more difficult to track Tether redemptions. And can we can we touch on why? The information that Protos has obtained, the problem that we faced in that, so how we determined a lot of the entities in the Tether papers and the data analysis was matching blockchain transaction times and amounts to specific blockchain addresses. But we found and concluded that most redemptions happen by entities sending their tether back to tether treasuries from exchange hot wallets and uh, listeners might be aware that hot wallets while blockchains uh, do offer some form of open source ledger exchange hot wallets service a form of a black hole when it comes to blockchain analysis in that it is in, practically impossible to determine exactly who outbound transactions from crypto exchange wallets belong to without some kind of insider information at the exchanges themselves. 
this is also why it's it's difficult to uh i mean the, the the tether papers did a lot of investigation a lot of mapping of various transactions to entities but it was still only 70 percent complete the remaining 30 percent of tether transactions were to hot wallets and we were able to determine some transactions that were sent to hot wallets based on the information that we were obtained and link those to certain entities but for 30 percent of it it's just not possible at least with the information that we currently have so redemptions are difficult the only real way to determine exactly who redeems and how much would unfortunately to be uh to have you know the inside scoop or, or a lead. And just to too long didn't read what you're saying here. Essentially, Tether m mints Tethers and then sends them to their own wallet and then distributes them from there. So it's much easier to track that as opposed to Tethers going back to, say, Binance or Bitfinex and then getting sent back to the Tether Treasury because at that point, you're looking into a black hole and hoping you can decipher how there's anything coming out the other end. I don't know, it doesn't, it's impossible, right? Unless you have an inside source. But okay, so let's let's move on. I mean, this this brings up two other entities that I think are worth discussing in, in the Tether Papers. So uh, if you scroll down, you will see iFinex, and uh, and if you scroll down a little further, you also see um, Delchain. So these two entities are connected to Tether itself. I, I think it's worthwhile to just kind of talk about their role with Tether distribution. Okay, so with iFinex in particular, it's relatively obvious that iFinex played the role of Tether's earliest market maker, and that was by building the Tether markets on Bitfinex. And this is really what the blockchain data showed us. Uh, an overwhelming majority of, of iFinex Tether was sent directly to Bitfinex. So Tether issued iFinex 4.5 billion in Tether between October 2016 and the start of 2020. And that is 96% of iFinance's all trackable receipts. So as Tether was being born into the ecosystem, iFinance really played the role of building the markets. And this might be totally obvious, but the thing about iFinance is that it is a little bit of a conundrum because it seems as though that iFinance simply at some point at the start of 2020, decided to stop receiving Tether. And at that point, other market makers like Alameda and Cumberland really kind of took the reins of uh, requesting Tether. So it seems from the information that we have that iFinance was once a major Tether market maker, but then its business model shifted to providing these loans to the major market makers and just facilitating Tether issuances rather than market making itself on Bitfinex. There's some historical information about Tether, Bitfinex, and iFinex I want to add here just to color these observations. Bitfinex and Tether both lost access to their U.S. correspondent banking around March of 2017 when Wells Fargo cut off their Taiwanese banks they were using. Uh, this is when you really start to see Bitfinex lean into using Crypto Capital Core and the like. And so if you look at like the charts involved here, you can see around March or April of 2017, issuance to people who were not iFinex basically dropped off. And the way Tether began to operate was first minting at the printer, sending to the treasury, then sending to Bitfinex, where then people could 
get tethers and propagate them out into the marketplace more broadly. Bitfinex themselves basically served as the uh, place people could go to to get and redeem tethers, enforcing tethers $1 peg until November of 2018 when Tether announced that they had began banking with Deltec Bank in the Bahamas and reopened their platform for verification and to let people directly issue and redeem with Tether. And so many of the entities were, we see throughout the rest of this period who seem to not get very many Tethers during this period from like March of 2017 through November of 2018, likely we're still participating in these markets and getting tethers, but we're getting them indirectly through iFinex instead of directly through Tether due to the unique and challenging banking situations that Bitfinex and Tether were experiencing during this period. And I think it's actually very important to look at Delchain because Delchain is related to Deltech, which is the bank for Bitfinex and Tether. And Delchain starts to blast off in November of 2018, roughly. Right around then, they start to get utilized a lot as Deltech becomes the, the banking partner. So I think there is a, a line that you can follow here. And, and Delchain is intricately involved with all of these entities. Yeah, what, what, I, what I found, I mean, Delchain is one of the only entities that we analyzed and, and named that really is a steady stream of Tether that it was issued since late 2018, early 2019. It really did, uh, I mean, 63% of its Tether was received in the past year, but really, it really started loading up on Tether at the bottom of the bear market, but it has also pretty much received Tether all the way up. It noticeably dropped off the issuances uh, in the past few months, but it is really one of the only funds that has constantly kept up the Tether issuances all the way up. So whatever Delchain is doing, they are very active and they are serving a very active role within Tether's total ecosystem. Uh, in total, they've they've received at least 908 million, so almost a billion, much smaller than Alameda and Cumberland. I mean, together, those two receive 60 billion at least. Still, whatever Delchain is up to, it's likely trading, looking at, the, at their patterns, it issues directly to exchanges. So... Delchain, of the 908 million, seven, about three quarters of it, nearly 700 million, went straight to Bitfinex. That gives you some idea that Bitfinex is their primary platform on which they wish to market, make, or trade. Yeah, and I want to give just again a little bit more historical context that helps explain why that is. Uh, we know in the summer of 2018, Paulo Arduino, the chief technical officer of both Bitfinex and Tether, was a director at Delchain down in the Bahamas. And we also know around March of 2020, Delchain made a big announcement about Fugger Alpha, their cryptocurrency focus hedge fund they were launching that specifically was going to be trading on Bitfinex. Um, and Bitfinex announced it as well. So I think it's likely that the reason Delchain is getting those tethers is so that they can actively trade. And they previously announced that Fugger Alpha, their hedge fund, would be doing that primarily on Bitfinex. And so it makes sense. It, that that's the progression we saw out of Delchain. It, it, it is it's also particularly active on Kraken too. A quarter of Delchain's issuances that we mapped went, went straight to Kraken. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what to put that down to apart from Kraken is about as old as Bitfinex. Uh, and to me, it's just in the same kind of camp. Isn't Kraken's only USDT pair their USD-USDT pair? 
No, not any longer, but I was going to state that historically, Kraken was, before Coinbase and every other US dollar value cryptocurrency exchange was utilizing and trading USD, USDT markets, Kraken was one of the only places you could make that trade. So it could very well just be historical precedent or something like that, where, or like, you know, they're buddy buddies for a very long time. Um, it could be something as simple as that. There could be something more complex, complicated about it. We, we're not sure, right? Uh, so next on the list is Nexo. That That's similar. Uh, you, you, I think we even discussed Maybe we don't describe it like this, but I, I think it's very similar to the way um, Celsius says that it utilizes Tether. So that makes sense. They're both lending platforms designed to operate that way. It makes sense. Nexo does run its own exchange. So it obviously needs a lot of a lot of Tether to, to provide liquidity to that exchange, but also its lending platform. It might be worth bringing up Nexo when we discuss inflows because Nexo was one of the only two entities that we found, two major entities, that still used its external addresses to return Tether to treasuries, which made Three Arrows and Nexo easily mappable uh, to see when exactly they return their Tether to Tether. So yeah, more trackable than others. I think uh, that that is interesting. Um, the next one on this list is a company called Hika. And I, I would assume that most people in cryptocurrency haven't heard of Hika. It's one that really opened my eyes because I'd, I'd never heard of this. But the first thing that pops up when you look them up is the Paradise Papers. And they are, they are listed in the Paradise Papers. The people involved are all Maltese... Uh, professors and um, they work for insurance organizations and associations and it's a very interesting little group that we have there and one I didn't expect to receive over a billion tethers. Uh, yeah, I mean it was more than a billion and a half tethers even. They describe themselves as a market neutral market maker and I think that this is a very, I think that there is nothing more bland than that description because I believe that they are just a crypto trading operation. That's how I read what they do. Most of their tether was sent directly to Bitfinex. And it's true that there is not much information about this company at all. They have no online footprint. They run a private fund that you can invest in if you have a minimum of $85,000 US. So crypto people might be familiar with how grayscale trusts work in that they, they might be publicly listed their shares, but they are essentially a private fund and they do uh, subscription rounds in which you can contribute funds. And Hecker appears to work in much the same way Except imagine if Grayscale was run by only university professors and academics. I might be filling in the blanks here, but how I have come to terms with what Hecker is and how I have described it to other people is that listeners might remember the Kevin Spacey movie uh, from the mid-2000s called 21, in which a bunch of MIT professors, or one MIT professor, collected all the maths nerds at MIT and then ran a count carding racket across various casinos. And I'm not implying any wrongdoing at Hecker, but a, this is a great analogy for what this appears to be, is that you have compliance professors uh, and other you know, people familiar with crypto technology that are leveraging Tether 
to make a profit by what they can call market neutral market making. That sounds like we're saying, we don't know if it's bullish or not, but we're making money on it. So this is really what Hecker is. Uh, and it was it was really cool to release this information, to be honest, because crypto people would have never heard of Hecker, but if, to ever have up to $900 million of collateral to give to Teva to receive it if they are doing the collateralized loans, this is impressive for a unit made up of university professors. It's worth noting that the ECA is quite successful. Over the past three years, the, you can actually find the, the returns that they've posted uh, on, on Financial Times' website because they use it to market their private fund. It's apparently returned nearly 100% over the past three years, which I'm sure is beating some benchmarks. And so... If Hecker is involved in cryptocurrency markets, it stands to reason that at least some of those returns are based on what it does in the crypto markets, or at least it is it is powered by that. Uh, whether they're invested in just standard equities and are using their crypto profits to buy those equities and invest, we don't know, unfortunately. You know, David, you took a really keen interest into Three Arrows, which I wasn't I, Three Arrows is a well-known fund. Uh, Suzu is very active, and Kyle Davies is very active on. They're both very active on Twitter. They're very loud about their calls, and they're often right about their calls. And uh, I think you just were kind of stunned by how how true that became in the data we were looking at. I really think that of the entities that we have mapped and we have discussed that. Three Arrows appears to be, I hate to, to pump these people up or give them some kind of advertisement or shout out. This is like my kryptonite. But they at least appear the most reasonable benchmark for a crypto fund that at least manages Tether. I will say that. We were not able to track 100% of its Tether issuances, uh, unfortunately. So there is a heat map uh, of when it issues Tether on the website, but it drops off in March uh, because I strongly believe and with you know 99.9% confidence that sometime in March, it stopped receiving Tether at its external addresses and instead switched to receiving Tether straight on Binance, I believe, uh, maybe some other platforms. And you know, I saw some very interesting transactions that kind of led me to believe that this was totally true because in March, it was their last issuance directly from a Tether treasury and it was something like, I don't know, 5 million in Tether. And it received it, but within four minutes, it had returned it back to Tether treasuries. And I understand that sometimes Tether gives these flash loans, but for this to be the last tether transaction before it goes dark and then from that point on it had returned i think it's over one or 1.2 billion worth of tether back to treasuries after that point which this is practically double the tether it had ever received up until that point and if you look at three arrows blockchain patterns when it would return its tether to tether treasuries it would first pull in tether mostly from Binance. And as well, between March and October 31, unidentified market makers on Binance had received in total 9 billion in Tether. So it stands to reason that some of the 
Tether distributed directly to Binance Hot Wallets was three arrows. So with this in mind, what you can read into three arrows heat maps is that it is was very good at acquiring Tether practically at the bottom, the very bottom of the bear market. When Bitcoin was worth just $3,000, I think it was in early 2020, it started acquiring Tether big time. And then it continued to acquire Tether on the way up. But generally, it really acquired it on the uh, as crypto markets were on the way up. And then, because we can track its inflows, because it would only return Tether, we believe, from its own external wallets, it then returned Tether right at the top of the crypto market in late April. So this is a pattern where a crypto hedge fund could acquire Tether at the very bottom of the bear market and then return Tether at the very top. And I have to believe that this is a very profitable enterprise for a crypto hedge fund. Other entities did not do it to such precision as Three Arrows. So I am reading this as whatever is happening over there, they appear to be playing the game correctly. Yep. To me, the last uh, funds or whatever we want to call it that I found uh, absolutely fascinating was um, what what you've termed Shylong's Web, which was Paratone AIOD, or I don't even know how, how you say it properly, and Shylong Wong, along with Max Victory Wealth Management and ZB Trade. So, so a bunch of names that probably no one is familiar with. And I, I'm just wondering, it, this is a lot of money. This is um, almost 600 million tethers issued to them, and they're supposedly located in uh, San Jose, California. I think that this is probably the most curious part of the report. So there's a few things going on here. Shylong's web of companies, most of this act- activity happened between 2019 and 2020. Uh, only 1% of Shylong's web tether was received in the past year. But just to give uh, listeners some kind of scale for how big Shylong's web uh, is and was, we found that they were responsible for about 6.5% of all the tether ever issued to funds and companies. So Three Arrows, if I can just have a look, Three Arrows received 7.3%. So Shylong's web is almost as big as Three Arrows. And this is even if they did not receive any tether in the past year, while Three Arrows did. And also, also at one point in the second half of 2019, Shylong's web accounted for f- over 5% of all Tether ever issued. So Tether is completely aware of who this person is, and they're completely aware of this string of companies if they have done KYC on everyone who is purchasing Tether. So they know who it is, and very curiously, Cumberland Global also knows who it is because we found by analyzing Shylong's web's blockchain addresses and cross-referencing them with Cumberland's, that Shylong's web actually sent Cumberland $20.5 million in Tether in April 2019, and then Cumberland sent back $1.15 million in Tether back to Shylong's web in the same month. So I'm not saying that Cumberland and Shylong are the same group. I'm not saying that Shylong works for Cumberland. But I think that what this shows is that Cumberland runs over-the-counter trading desk for cryptocurrency and accepts Tether. 
and has done business with Shilong's Web in some form. There are a few other entities that also interacted with Cumberland in the same way, some entities that we didn't name. So it is common for these smaller crypto trading outfits to transact Tether with the larger market makers in the space, particularly Cumberland Global, which I think is something that is very curious. It just gives an insight into the multiple functions that the major market makers in the space have. Something that, I mean, market makers in traditional finance, they are only market makers and that's their whole business historically. But the market makers in the space seem to do whatever they can do with the cryptocurrency that they have and simply cast a wide net, let's say, to bring in as much revenue as possible. And I think that Shylong's interactions with Cumberland and the other funds that we discovered had also interacted in the same way perfectly represents that. Yeah, so I was really interested when I saw the information about the web, and especially that one of the entities was ZB Trading, and that that was registered overseas, because I remembered Cass and I had looked into this one really small, really strange exchange at ZB.com, and the reason we had looked into it is one day it looked like uh, Tether volumes on CoinMarketCap had suddenly exploded. When we started looking into it, it's because there was this one exchange, ZB.com, reporting an absurd amount, like billions of volume per day of their ZB exchange token being traded against USDT. And it looked very much like huge amounts of it were being wash traded on this exchange. And so like, it was interesting to then see ZB trading pop up in Shilong's web. Um, we have not yet been able to prove that ZB.com is directly connected to ZB trading and that that's where the USDT are ending up or at some portion of the USDT are ending up there. But that was certainly a connection that I couldn't avoid making when I was reading over the report. What I could find is that Shilong's Web had sent over 100 million in Tether to Japanese exchange Bitbank. And this is an exchange that has been around since 2014 or so. So I think that at the very minimum, Shilong's Web is not purely a hedge fund that invests in cryptocurrency. I would say that they exploit arbitrage opportunities between various exchanges. And I, I think that uh, you know that was their function on BitBank. Uh, I'm not aware of the trading pairs that were active on BitBank uh, in 2019 and 2020, but at least we know that they like to trade on many different exchanges. And then finally, the last two entities are, are individuals, really. Uh, Christopher Harborn, who Protoss has previously reported on, a Brexiteer and individual with a Thai citizenship and UK citizenship, and Justin Sun, who's well known for loving himself and creating Tron. These ones were interesting because they, they individually were able to mint a significant amount of tether harborn is interesting because one his son appears to work for a bitfinex related company or formerly bitfinex related company also really was the spearhead of the brexit movement while he held all this tether um and justin son i mean well he's justin son uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, Harborn's an interesting cat. We've looked into Harborn a little bit, and he is involved in the private jet market, yeah, the aviation fuel economy, and is just connected to a web of shell companies that purportedly deal with these things. It is very he, you know, he also does what on the surface appears to be legitimate things within the cryptocurrency space. He's sponsored research from universities about blockchain and cryptocurrency. So it's not just that he is just some guy that collects tether. He is also quite embedded in the industry, at least behind the scenes, and is at least familiar with most entities. At, at, at one point, if listeners go back and read our original Christopher Harborn piece, we discovered that he was lobbying in the UK, I think he also lobbied politicians in Malta. We don't know what those conversations were, but he is at least invested enough in the space and has enough skin in the game to want to influence politicians to do certain things that align with his interests and Bitfinex's interests. Yeah, I mean, the connections with his son, okay, I don't want to, you know, bring Will Harborn into what his dad does because we do not know the relationship there. Will Harborn is very active in the space and it is curious that Christopher Harborn, his father was a Digfinex, Digfinex shareholder uh, and his son also worked for or was in charge of Bitfinex's decentralized exchange, Ffinex, which is now spun out to be diversify, diversify, however you want to pronounce it. So both of them seem to have aligned interests, at least we can say that. And just, just to make a point here really quickly, while Christopher Harborn is certainly associated with lobbying, European lobbying entities that are trying to lobby for digital currencies and their use in Europe, he isn't actually associated. He, he went to Cambridge, but he, he has a company called the Cambridge Advanced Research Alliance. It is a company, to be clear. Um, it is not necessarily, it has nothing to do necessarily with the University of Cambridge. It is just him naming a company very cleverly. And it is him and his sister who are directors of it. I, I don't know if it actually does any real research or anything, so. Sure, and, and Christopher Harborn is also connected. He's done business and operated ventures with Marco String, who is the co-founder of Hive Blockchain. I think that Christopher Harborn and Marco String I hope I recall these facts correctly, have a company called Singular AI Consulting Limited. So Christopher Harborn knows some very prominent players in the cryptocurrency space. We don't really know what Christopher Harborn did with his tether. Uh, I guess people who are successful in aviation fuel just need $200 million worth of tether. Uh, that's, that's kind of the extent of what we know. But we know that you know, he was at least a Digfinex shareholder when he was funding Brexit, specifically the Reform UK Party. He was the Reform UK Party's single biggest donor by a long mile. And the conspiratorial implication there is that if Harborn had made profit from his shareholding activities with Bitfinex and Tether's parent company, then it stands to reason that spiritually, it could be that some of the money he donated to Reform UK uh, was bolstered 
by his successful shareholding of that parent company. Tether's success caused Brexit, is what I'm hearing. <laughs> this is not proven, but it is very enjoyable to discuss. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Christopher Harborn got a bunch of Tethers. He's a Digifinex shareholder and seems to be pretty actively involved in this kind of thing. And Justin's son is at least on paper, a billionaire who's very actively trading in cryptocurrency, right? Like supposedly he regularly is sending large sums of stable coins into various projects and protocols on Tron. So I think it makes sense that he would have a whole bunch of tethers. And plus him getting issued a whole bunch of tethers on Tron helps legitimize Tron as a chain for tether to be used on, which I think is then important for the amount of Tron that Justin Sun holds and making sure that that's valuable, right? And so him getting issued at least, what, 200 million USDT on Tron then makes Tron look more legitimate as a chain to use USDT on. Other people might follow, increases the value of Tron and Justin Sun profits as he often does. Yeah, I mean, we tracked his blockchain addresses and I believe that he was the first ever recipient of Tron on the Tron blockchain. I just want to highlight Justin Sun's character arc within the cryptocurrency ecosystem because, uh, you know, in late 2017 and 2018, hopefully I'm not being too harsh, Justin Sun, if you're listening, he was kind of a joke. I got to say, Tron was absolute trash when it launched the fork of ethereum j the java implementation of ethereum most of it was plagiarized and this guy just pumped his own coin into oblivion and it was at a, at a point in time when binance was launching too and cz and justin sun were just two token pumpers pumping the shit out of every token and it just so happened that justin sun had his own token to pump and he was very good at it but the cryptocurrency industry, at least at that point in time, and the markets and the sentiment surrounding altcoins like Tron, it was quite negative and skeptical of Justin Sun. Ethereum insiders hated this guy because he had just stolen Ethereum, made it more centralized, and sold a token on top of it. Bitcoiners hated him because he had an altcoin. But now, Justin Sun, he is the degenerate king. He is in every yield-bearing coin. He's pumping NFTs. He's, well, I don't even know what the term is, counter-bidding Medicoven to pump up the price of Beeple's NFT. This guy is like the degenerate crypto trading king. So for him to buy Tether, it makes sense. I mean, there were rumors that Justin Sun paid somehow for Tether to have its logo on Twitter. I don't understand what Justin Sun gets out of Tether having its own logo, but I think just after Tether got its logo, Tron got its own logo too. So it's just everybody gets a logo and everyone's happy and everyone has Tether. So it was just very fun to map both Justin Sun and Christopher Harbon's Tether issuances. I would believe, I want to hedge it a little bit, that Justin Sun has received a lot more tether than what we have been able to tie to his name. We know a couple or a few of Justin Sun's blockchain addresses, but they haven't received any tether in a while. And considering his propensity for yield-bearing cryptocurrencies, uh, he probably has been receiving a lot more tether than what we've been able to prove. So I will say that. Great. Um, I don't know if there's anything else you both would like to add. Um, maybe some key points about 
takeaways or for me, I just want to say I, I look forward to people looking into some of these relatively unknown entities. I hope that we get some armchair detectives and some uh, some mainstream media journalists out there hunting these names down because uh, there's probably something worthwhile out there. Um, but I don't know about you two. Maybe there's something you would both like to add. I mean, I, I thought it was a really interesting look that ended up revealing a lot kind of about the cryptocurrency industry as a whole, just because of how centrally located Tether is. And so seeing how these funds propagate out through the ecosystem into these major market makers, these major liquidity providers, into these proprietary trading desks and stuff like that kind of gives you an idea of how a little bit about how money flows through the ecosystem in general. And then, of course, there's lots of fun little oddities to focus in on, like Shilong's web or the role of iFinex in the issuance of Tether. But I think overall, it's just a fascinating bit of transparency into Tether's operations and Tether's clients that we've never really had before. I will add that it's important for cryptocurrency traders to understand that if they are buying and selling cryptocurrencies on a major market like Binance or Huobi or FTX, it is likely that your counterparty is, if not one of the entities that we have named, it is an entity like it. So I think that when you are an individual cryptocurrency trader, you like to think that you are trading against another degenerate on the other side, and it is a fair match. And I, you know, I'm far from alleging that the cryptocurrency markets are rigged, but it is just highly likely percentage wise that who you are trading against has much more capital than you, has proprietary trading algorithms that can outtrade you. And this is very important to understand if you are making multiple trades per day trying to be a crypto day trader. So when you read into this report and you read into these funds, understand the powers that you are working against. And we hope if anything comes of it, it would be very cool if the mainstream media looks into some of these entities. It'd be very cool if armchair investigators do too. I just hope that we have informed you in some way of what you need to understand if you want to make profit trading cryptocurrency. I think those are both great points uh, to end on. I am so glad that this was published. I'm so grateful to have you on. David, Bennett, thank you guys for having this discussion. And, uh, and yeah, I look forward to hearing more. Thank you so much, man. Thank you, BT. Props to everybody.